0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Sandra Hutchinson on December 29, 2014. Sandra is the author of two books, Chinese Brushstrokes, which is a memoir of her time in China in the prelude to and aftermath of the Tenement Square incident, and The Art of Nesting, a book of poems. Sandra holds a PhD in English literature from the University of Toronto, And has taught at universities around the world, including in mainland China and Hong Kong. She currently lives in Maine with her husband and her 12-year-old daughter. In addition to writing books, she teaches at the University of Maine and holds the position of Maine Studies Research Associate. For the past three years, she has served as poetry editor of a Maine literary journal. We talk about her literary work and her work with the Wilmette Institute. I started the interview by asking Sandra where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in Toronto. My parents are both psychologists, so I grew up in a very uh, unusual world. My father was a forensic psychologist and involved in the forensic clinic in its early days at the University of Toronto. My mother is a child psychologist, so I, I grew up in this really exciting intellectual and social milieu Psychology, at least in Toronto, was very much in its um, infancy then as a as an academic subject at the university. Although it had been studied for well since the late 19th century, I think, but it had only after the war did it become a a popular discipline and a a profession that people were were entering in larger numbers, less esoteric and more viewed as a mainstream profession. So my, my parents rode that wave, and that was the world I grew up in. It was pretty kind of a uh, avant-garde kind of a world where new ideas were considered every day at the, the dinner table.
0: <laughs> what was religious life like growing up?
1: Well, my grandmother was a... Free Methodist. She was born in the early 20th century, so she grew up in a time when rural life was very much guided by religion, and people had very firm uh, adherences to their camp. She was a Free Methodist. They didn't really associate with the Catholics, and but an interesting thing happened is that my mother or my grandmother fell in love with a Catholic and married him, and my mother repeated that pattern, uh, being a Catholic who fell in love with an Anglican. So we had this religious tension in two generations <laughs> to the point where my mother really left faith behind because it had been a source of, of conflict within the family for two generations. And she just decided she was not going to practice a religion, but she was going to be a spiritual person. And she was all her life and did an enormous amount of good work, and as did my father, who did not have a, you know, a faith that he adhered to in any kind of uh, obvious way, but certainly put into practice the idea that the purpose of one's life is to to serve others in the community and in the family. He even said that to me once. There wasn't any religion per se, although we had been exposed to it through my grandmother who remained deeply religious and a very Protestant and Somewhat fundamentalist way till the end of her life. She married in the church, but never, never accepted it. And although she went, she really didn't like the way the Catholics worshipped. She had grown up with camp meetings and itinerant preachers and all of that, you know, put down a, a few rows of chairs in a field. And there were a lot of hysterics and, you know, conversions and people falling on the grass. And my mother was turned off by that as well. But my own environment in Toronto was very much a, uh, a world of uh, openness to new ideas, uh, liberal kind of uh, stance towards uh, social problems, or even even going further than that, my parents are voted NDP and were on the socialist side, leaning towards the left. The world I grew up in was a world in which there was a deep commitment to social transformation to helping the underdog and my father was very involved in the abolition of capital punishment that was one of the causes he took up and he he worked with sex offenders and he tried to rehabilitate them and he used he moved away from using psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic approaches as were popular before the war to using behaviorism and he had a lot of success actually and, uh, he lived in the dark side of the society, and that's where he felt, a, I guess, a sense of mission to do his work. Although I don't think he would have ar- ever articulated it in that way. And all my my siblings and I all turned out to be uh, very strong social activists in different ways. My sister's a lawyer, and she she's an advocate for the disabled. My brother's a law professor, and he works on the environment and intellectual property. My sister's a teacher and she works at the the really important level of, of uh, you know education of small children. So we all and my other brother was a, a scholar who worked in who's very interested in the Middle East and peace process. So we all have taken up that social commitment in different ways. I'm the only one who is with an affiliation to a religion. I'm the only one in the family.
0: And Sandra, what's your educational background?
1: Well, I have a PhD from the University of Toronto in English literature, and then I did a postdoc at UBC, and my my, uh, subject was the literary left-wing movement. I was very interested in literature, of protest, and the role of of literature in engendering social change and how literature could uh, form its identity as genuine art at the same time as it brought significant, even radical, changes to society. And, of course, I found that that didn't work at all. Really? (laughs) No, the poetry of the 1930s is really pretty dated. I mean, that kind of propagandistic literature tends to die because it's just too rooted in the particulars of a time. You know, Mm -hmm. it it lacks the universals that are necessary to create enduring literature, Uh, the sense of a universal question that's being explored. The significance just dies, I suppose. Mm. And I found that in China, I went to China after I finished my PhD, I was very attracted to revolutionary movements. And, Mm. well, I I suppose in a sense that I was attracted to the Baha'i Faith for that reason. I knew it wasn't a revolutionary movement in the typical sense, social movement. I knew that its vision was of radical social change, and that really attracted me. I don't think that's why I came into the Baha'i faith initially. Mm -hmm. I was very young. I was only 17.
0: So Sandra, can you tell me your story about how you ran into the Baha'i faith and what caused you to become an adherent?
1: It was a very ordinary kind of experience in a way because I, my friend, I was 17 or 16. I was in high school. And I guess it was in my last year of high school. I must have been 17. And uh, my friend ran into some young Baha'i pioneers, young people who are pioneering, living in our suburb of Toronto. Now,
0: what does pioneering mean, Sandra?
1: Pioneers are people who go to live in another place other than their their home in order to promulgate the Bahá'í teachings, attract new adherents to the faith, and teach about the Bahá'í principles to those who don't know about them. So we met these young people. There were three of them: Mick, Mary, and Mary, <laughs> and they were all musicians. And in the in the spirit of the day, they invited us to their apartment and they sang songs uh, with their guitars accompanied by their guitars some of which they composed themselves and some of which were popular at the time and you know the in the folk tradition we were very moved they seemed incredibly excited to have us there we couldn't quite understand
0: now you why. say you say we sandra who are you oh
1: my friend and i we went to their apartment we listened to the songs and we afterwards they asked us uh, if we wanted to hear about this new message and We said, sure. I mean, we were 17. We were open to everything. And they told us about Baha'u'llah and his teachings and that all religions are one. And I, I of course, knew immediately it was true. It was not a question. And it wasn't a conversion experience or anything. It just seemed eminently reasonable. And I felt that, yes, this must be true. And so I joined and my friend took uh, more time to join. But it, it took me a long time to really understand what I uh, what I had embraced and to live it and to integrate it into my life. It was later on in that year that when I began to read the Baha'i writings, I had a kind of a conversion experience where I understood the beauty and the power and the spiritual potency of these writings, and it became less of an intellectual commitment than a a deeply
0: personal one. So you immediately grasped the concept of the oneness of religion. What did that concept mean to you?
1: Well, it made sense. And and it wasn't just the the concept of the oneness of religion, but the identity of Baha'u'llah I accepted as well, because it seemed to me that anybody who could take religion one step further in this way by reuniting all the faith traditions which is something that had had perplexed me and bothered me all my life thus far i was 17 and i i thought this this represents an advance in thinking it opens an opportunity for the betterment of the world anybody who would have revealed that truth has to be a divine messenger so it, it all fit together for me and i really didn't have any questions. And fortunately, my parents had left me completely free to, I had no prejudices at all whatsoever, no prejudice. I was completely free to make my own decision and to independently investigate the truth. And this seemed to me to be true and sensible. I saw no reason to resist it, and no reason to resist the assertion that they were making of the divine station of Baha'u'llah that seemed very eminently possible to me.
0: Now what does this divine station of Baha'u'llah mean?
1: Well I I, I knew that there was Jesus and Moses and of course in Toronto in those days we really didn't go much beyond that. There hadn't been the huge influx of Somalis or other ethnicities who who are Muslim who follow Islam as a religion so those are really my two reference points. One's understanding of the divine station of Baha'u'llah is something that continues to grow and evolve as one matures spiritually. And with the passage of time, I find that my grasp of what that means has really changed and deepened. Now, at that stage, when I was 17, I understood that, yes, there there could very well be, and there, there were, I believe, prophets that had come at different points in human history and intervene in human society bringing with them a revelation that would enable the people of the day and their the subsequent generations to reshape society according to laws that were more appropriate for the day and teachings that were universal and their, their significance which had, had possibly been forgotten. So this, this could happen over centuries. And, Baha'u'llah was the latest messenger to renew the divine message and renew the contact of God with humanity. However, what I understood that to be much later was was an entirely different thing. It becomes, you know, an experiential understanding, I think, uh, as time goes on and one has more experience of the Baha'i community, of the world. Certainly when I was in Israel in 1991 to 1993, working in in Haifa at the Baha'i World Center in the research department, and as I probed more and more deeply the writings themselves and had the opportunity to be present in the holy places, and I'll never forget being able to participate and attend the centenary of the passing of Baha'u'llah at Bashi, the life-changing, life-transforming spirit. Bashi oh. being the Qibli, the point of adoration, the center, spiritual center, axis of the Baha'i world, and the place uh, where Baha'is go to, for pilgrimage once in their life or more.
0: And that's where Baha'u'llah was laid to rest?
1: Yes, this is uh, where he was laid to rest. Mm-hmm. And so that was an experience that very much transformed my understanding of the station of Baha'u'llah because being present in those holy places is quite a unique experience,
0: very difficult
1: to describe. Yeah,
0: it is. What's interesting is that the Baha'i faith was born out of Iran, Mm -hmm. yet we have Baha'i holy places in Israel Right, And as we all know, there's contention between Israel and Iran, yet the Baha'i faith transcended its history from Iran to Israel. And maybe you could explain how is it that a faith that was born in Iran ended up having historical significant places in Israel?
1: Well, Baha'u'llah was exiled, as you know, and ended up in, in Akka, which was a penal colony, at the time from you know successively exiled to further and further from iran and finally ending up in what was then palestine and you know we as baha'is as you know view this as a fulfillment of the prophecies of the bible and uh, other scriptures so he ended up there and um, of course palestine became israel in the 1940s and Hence, our Baha'i holy places are in the Holy Land, which is now called Israel.
0: Going back to when you became a Baha'i, when you did become a Baha'i, did it change your perspective in what you wanted to make your life to be or what what direction you wanted to take your life in?
1: Well, you know, that was a complex and ongoing process. Mm -hmm. I don't think that happened right away. I mean, I I, I had this kind of honeymoon period when I joined the Baha'i Faith, and I was in a state of ecstasy and bliss because I discovered this incredible truth, which was just mind-blowing, really. Even though I wasn't a Christian and wasn't really raised as a Christian in any conscious way by my parents, I was aware of the prophecies that the Messiah would come, and of course that's that's in Judaism as well. And to think that this had actually happened took me a long time to absorb that. But I went away to university the next year, and I, I don't think that I had really integrated the Baha'i faith, its teachings, uh, what it really meant. I pursued my love of literature, and I did that right through to the end of the Ph.D., it was at that time I began to consider what I was going to do with my life when I finished the Ph.D., and I went on a retreat, interestingly, a Catholic retreat. I did a lot of this in my graduate years. I went out to a Catholic retreat run by the Jesuits because it was just such a quiet place, beautiful place, and I could walk and be close to nature to really pray about what the next step was. And I I had my second mystical experience in that place. And after that, I became very alive with a sense of mission and a feeling of urgency that I should do the thing that was the most I could do for the faith and and take the biggest risk, make the largest sacrifice that I could contemplate making. And so I went, after I finished my postdoc and I, was kind of upset when I got the postdoc, even though it was a lot of money and very prestigious, because I wanted to go to China, I decided. During the postdoc years, I traveled a lot. I went to India. And I went all over Europe, because in 1986, I had gone on my first trip to China. That was uh, when I was just finishing my PhD, and with a delegation of, of very prominent women from Canada, including Doris Anderson, who was an important figure in feminism and the Canadian scene. I went to China with the first women's delegation to visit Omni province, and I had fallen in love with China and felt that this was a place where I could really do something. And, of course, it was a, an important priority for the faith at that time because there was nobody in China, there were no Baha'is in China. And although we absolutely respected the wishes of the government and we didn't mention the faith at all, There was a movement to encourage Baha'is to go and offer social service to the Chinese people to uplift their societies after some fashion, according to their abilities. So I went as a university teacher. I went right after the postdoc, and I was young, and I had very idealistic notions of what I would achieve or do in China. It was hard, very hard. I was very isolated. It was 1988. I couldn't mention the faith. I certainly didn't have a Baha'i community of any kind there. And I said prayers and I offered service to the best of my ability to the university. Uh, Of course, that year was a very critical year in China. It was a year of the Tiananmen uprising. And so in the spring, the student movement began, democracy movement, and classes were canceled and there's a class boycott and there was all kinds of activity. And protests uh, in the central area of the city in Hufei, and also in Beijing, Shanghai, all over China, and ending in the Tiananmen massacre, about which we have all read in the newspapers and seen news coverage of on television. That was how I left China. I was evacuated by my government. It's very traumatic. Thus, my idealism about well, first of all, about societies like China that attempted that kind of radical social change. That idealism was very crushed. But my sense of what I could do in a country like that was also shattered in a sense. My hopes were shattered. I came back from it. It took me a long time to to sort it all out and to understand what the nature of of true social transformation was. I used the Baha'i teachings to unravel that question for myself and came to to reflect very differently on what had happened in China. I used to tell my students in the days before the class boycott things were already heating up in China and it looked like there was going to be a mass movement of the sort that there was eventually. I told them, I said, you know, evolution is revolution without the R. I said, that's the way... China has to go. Evolution, social evolution, revolution. The R has a, a kind of a an aggressive, vicious sound, yeah. and revolution has a, an aggressive, vicious outcome, almost always. I really discourage them from that kind of radical social change. I did understand, even at that time, that What the Baha'i community was doing was very different from that. It was very evolutionary, very organic. It never involved confrontation. It never involved demands of the sort the students were making. It involved negotiation. It involved gradual social change and participatory democracy that also had Governments on board, you know, it happened through a system of government rather than despite it But well, I wrote a book about it and that was healing for me about what I had seen in China uh, not only the the tragedy but the beauty and the hope that was um, Embedded in the culture at that time and the vision of change and the spirituality as well because there was a an openness to spirituality and a, a search or uh, something to follow, something to believe in. And I think and I've always felt that and ended that, crushed the idealism of the Chinese people, and they really abandoned the search for social change and for systems that might bring the kind of social change and social good that they sought, and they became materialistic. That just led to very different things than I had hoped for, not a return to the cultural strengths, you know, the traditional strengths of the Chinese people and their traditions, their philosophies, but rather a, an opening up to Western ideas and to Western notions of prosperity, which were very much rooted in materialism.
0: The book that you wrote, Sandra, is called Chinese Brushstrokes. Right, right. And-
1: Yes, it is. Chinese Press Strokes 1996, Turnstone Press in Canada, published
0: it. Do you have a favorite passage that you'd like to read from that?
1: How about this? This is from the the prologue, and I think this pretty much sums up what I learned in China, more or less. Okay. I open up talking about Bertrand Russell and how he went to China in the 1920s. Bertrand Russell wrote... But those who value wisdom or beauty, or even the simple enjoyment of life, will find more of these things in China than in the distracted and turbulent West. I looked out of the window. Below me brooded a vast darkness. I could not guess the hour. North American time has lost all relevance. I wondered if we were flying over the Yellow Sea yet. I continued reading. I wish I could hope that China, in return for our scientific knowledge... They give us something of her large tolerance and contemplative peace of mind. I went on at the end of that first piece, which is the prologue, and give my own impressions uh, thus far of what China was for me. Contemplative peace of mind. A year after my return from China, I was still meditating on Russell's words. The China I had known was gray, soot-filled, bleak, and depressing. It bore little resemblance to Bertrand Russell's China. Yet why, when I thought of my time in China, did I remember only the music of the rain falling in the leaves of the Bajau trees outside my window, and a Chinese garden adorning the courtyard of the foreign guest house, with its quaint arched bridges overshadowing, glistening ponds of serene white water lilies. I remember the Lake of Tears, an algae-infested, man-made lake, the university official's had somehow decided was essential to the beautification of the campus, shimmering as the students walked hand in hand around it on moonlit nights, and the old people swaying to some ancient inner music as they practiced Tai Chi on its shores at dawn. One night, about a year after I returned from China, I had a dream. My Chinese teacher was taking me on a train back, far back into time. As we traveled... I passed by all the people who had been part of my past, grade school friends, comrades from my young adulthood, fellow travelers from more recent times, until I arrived at a beautiful garden in the classical Chinese style. The train stopped. I disembarked. I passed through an arched doorway into the garden. A brushstroke master waited to greet me. A room had been prepared for me. With a wave of his hand, he gestured his welcome. I entered the room and sat down. Then I took up my brush and I began to paint. You know, it was, uh, for me, China was a way of entering into history. The richness and the beauty of Chinese culture and uh, being so ancient, far beyond anything I can trace in terms of my own roots in Canada, which began maybe in the early 1800s. which my ancestors came from Ireland and England at that time, was really so enriching and life-transforming to be able to immerse myself in a culture so ancient with such a rich tradition of art and philosophy. And and these things being very embedded in the minds of people and in their behaviors and social relationships was really life-changing.
0: So, Sandra, you wrote another book called The Art of Nesting. Yes. What was that a book about, and what inspired you to write that book?
1: Well, I've been writing poetry for many years, and uh, studying poetry and writing poetry, and mostly writing it quite privately. And my friend, Michael Fitzgerald, I don't know if you know him, Mm -mm. uh, a Baha'i poet? No, I don't. Yes, he and I were in touch a lot over the years, maybe 20 years, and He encouraged me, and he followed me. He was writing away, writing his poetry and produced a number of books and followed me all over the world wherever I was uh, in the sense of calling me on the telephone and saying, asking me, what are you doing now? (laughs) (laughs) And I was always somewhere else and doing something new and all the time, of course, writing poetry somewhat secretly because I never published it. And at one point when I was here in Maine, I showed him his poems, and he said, these are really good. You need to get them published. And he had published his own poetry with George Ronald. And so he told me, I was going to send the manuscript and I did and she wanted to publish it. And hence it got published. And that was the same with my earlier book. I have to say I've been very negligent as a writer and I have not ever uh, really sought the publication of my books or my, what I've written in any real way. It's, it's come to me usually in the case of these two books. So I, I published the book, These are poems about nature, and nature as a a kind of emanation of spirit. And I've always found nature, as have many poets in the English tradition over many centuries, found in nature a divine presence. And I explored that in these poems and explored my own roots and my own family relationships, intimate relationships to some degree. And then at the very end of the book, there's a long poem uh, called Celestial Navigations, which is about the whole 20th century and it's an attempt at a kind of a very mini-epic, really, uh, looking at the trials and tribulations of the 20th century and the kind of salvation that the message of Baha'u'llah has brought and how it will bring out of that darkness light and transformation And so I I use the metaphor of the sailing voyage to explore that concept of salvation through the Baha'i revelation in the 20th century and 21st, because this was published in 2008, this, this book. I really, really want to read you the last poem, which is set in Israel, because I think this poem is maybe the first of its kind, I'm not sure.
0: Sandra didn't have her poetry with her when I asked her for a recitation. She graciously committed to emailing a recording of an excerpt from her sequence of poems called Celestial Navigations, which draws on the tablet of the Holy Mariner, a mystical work by Bahá'u'lláh. This poem sequence is called In the Persian Garden. She also introduces the poem in the recording that she provided.
1: I'd like to read a poem from The Art of Nesting, which was published by George Ronald in 2008. It's uh, the lyrics called In the Persian Garden. It's the last lyric in a long poem entitled Celestial Navigations, uh, which was inspired by Baha'u'llah's Tablet of the Holy Mariner. This final lyric describes the resting place of Baha'u'llah at Baji, and uh, the poem has taken us on a sea voyage through the 20th century holocaust and war and this is the final destination in a persian garden twilight settles over the garden of good and evil rising out of the mist at dawn the richness of loam a clean slate waiting to be inscribed with the poetry of trees flowers even the lowly shrub cries out To be appointed to the design is all it asks, Beneath the lordly cypress. No sins of omission here, Each unfolding leaf and bud Spans the arc of grace, Enters into peace, secure. Sea turns to sky, Sky to earth, The firmament eclipsed by acres of shrub stars In concentric circles. A single olive tree, some distant cousin of Gethsemane, gnarled and bent, punctuates the path to the Kiblet with the knots and whorls of holy utterance. The gems of its wisdom engraved in the stoic bark, betrayals unspoken. How the tree seems to look on with the eye of God, noting what is left undone and filling the interstices with bird song. The ship of fancy standeth still.
0: You are involved with the Wilmette Institute, and I was wondering if you could describe to folks what the Wilmette Institute is and what is your involvement with it.
1: It is an online university of a sort, Baha'i University in which people are rolling to take courses on a wide variety of Baha'i subjects and Baha'i-related subjects. There's a course on climate change, for example. But the two courses that I've been consistently teaching over the years, I've taught a lot of different things, and I taught a course on Shoghi Effendi for a while.
0: Just for folks who aren't aware, Shoghi Effendi was the hereditary head of the Baha'i faith, He's the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah, the prophet-founder of the Baha'i faith. And there was this passing on of the leadership of the Baha'i faith from Baha'u'llah to his son, Abdul Baha, and then ultimately to Abdul Baha's grandson, Shoghi Effendi, who passed away in 1957. Subsequently, the Baha'is now have an elected council called the Universal House of Justice that leads the Baha'i faith.
1: I taught a course on uh, writings of Shoghi Effendi. Uh, I think I taught a course that was on his guardianship, mm-hmm. his ministry. It was quite a while ago, but I, I taught a couple of courses on on Shoghi Effendi. Mm-hmm. But then I gradually gravitated towards uh, two courses, which are really, I'm really strongly interested in these these subjects. And one is the practice of the arts, which is a new course that I've just started up with visual artist uh, Marjan Nehru, and we have together offered this course twice now, and it's for people who are interested in developing as artists, people who are already practicing the arts in the Pai community and beyond, of course, they're welcome, or people who are interested in practicing the arts. So we have visual artists and we have writers. I deal with the writers. Marjan deals with the visual artists. And then recently we added another faculty member, Peggy Caton, who's going to be mentoring musicians. So this is a, a course somewhat like, well, it's a workshop course, and in it the same kinds of things that happen in an MFA program happen. So you produce work, you get it edited, you present it to your peers. And so this is a new development, the Wilmette Institute. It's a kind of a, a more practical, less academic course, although we do study the Baha'i writings, and we do look at ways in which they might inform our aesthetic that informs our writing or our, our artwork. And I also teach a course uh, with Anne Perry and again with Marshawn on, on the Baha'i Faith and the Arts, which is a more theoretical course about what is Baha'i art and what is a Baha'i aesthetic, and we look at a lot of uh, writings and also commentary by individuals on that subject, and the other course I teach, which is, is my own little brainchild, I guess you would say, is how to study the Baha'i Writings and has recently been changed to accessing the meaning of the revelation.
0: What's that one like?
1: Well, this I love. This course was my own idea and I really love teaching it because I've always felt that I've always sought to find some way of integrating my own background in literary criticism and uh, my own reading skills because as a, a, an English professor and I've been a writer too. So in both ways, my task these past 20, 30 years has been to cultivate myself as a reader so I can be a better writer and to cultivate myself as a reader so that I can teach other people how to read as well. And I wanted to integrate those skills that I've developed as a reader with a social purpose, a sense of social purpose, and to teach other people how to read and read well the Baha'i writings because it, the art of reading is difficult. It's something you, you have to learn to do, and most people don't learn to read anymore. People don't, in the sense that they don't deal with difficult texts in grade school, middle school, high school. People aren't reading poetry for the most part. Or they didn't read Robert Frost. They didn't read any of the traditional poets in the English tradition they were always reading these new funny poets and I really felt that the level of the language and uh, the idea was just not up to giving children the kind of background in the English language that they would really need to be sophisticated readers mm-hmm. you know to, to gain this acquire this high literacy that you really need to to read the Baha'i writings well and I've had people confess to me in this course that they've never read a Baha'i book. They couldn't get through one. And that they just simply can't make sense of the Baha'i writings. And I'm not surprised. Because when you consider that the level of reading required for to read a newspaper is maybe grade I don't know. It's in the elementary grades. And the Baha'i writings are a form of high poetry. You know, it's not easy to see why it would be really challenging for your average contemporary reader to access the Baha'i writing. So I use a series of windows which are based on literary tools. You know, I look at uh, imagery and symbolism, etc. I start with the level of, of the language and the word and diction, and then we move up to the sentence, and then we move to imagery and metaphor symbol etc and then we start looking at the paragraph and then we see how paragraphs are interconnected and then we learn how to begin reading a book meaning that you you look at the reliable criticism in this case the commentary of shogi effendi to orient yourself to the new work and then how would you proceed in reading it systematically so i try to teach those things and people have said it it's really helped them and it feels very useful to me. So I really like teaching that course. And it, it seems to me that this this is taking Rui to a higher level. And I'm really glad to see Rui in the community because it is teaching people the art of close reading. And this is what we've lost in the Internet age and, and the age of all this quick technology, the art of close reading. Uh, I don't know if you know Francine Prose's uh, Reading Like a, a Writer. Mm-mm. Well she in that book, she talks about how to read closely, and this is for writers. you know people who want to write books need to learn to read them really closely with with attention.
0: Now your Wilmet Institute class is using the Baha'i texts to help them learn to read.
1: Well, we actually start off with the newspaper and we look at uh, we, we juxtapose a newspaper article with a passage from the Secret of Divine civilization,
0: which is Just, a Baha'i text.
1: Right, which is by Abdu'l-Bahá, a Baha'i text. And so we just get the idea of how different these two texts are. And then uh, the next thing we do is we compare Sonnet of Shakespeare with a text from the Baha'i writings. So we see the similarity in language. And, and the King James Bible comes in there, too, because all of those uh, works are written in the same language, uh, the Baha'i text. Shakespeare and King James Bible are all written in the, the King's King James's English. And so I teach them to understand where that English is coming from, what the value of it is, uh, why use it. And so they can not feel just the sense of an obstacle before them in the language, but a sense of, oh, this is poetry. I need to learn how to read poetry because even though it's prose, it really is poetry it's it's metaphor rich it's deeply symbolic it's rhythmic so we we learn all of that how to approach the king james english and uh, what that means how 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 you need to read if you're going to understand and get something from that kind of language
0: this seems like really important work to me
1: well, I think it is. And, it, you know, it was for, it, for me, it, it happened as a result of my work in the research department where I began to, in Haifa, where I began to integrate my skills as a literary critic and a reader of text with the Baha'i writings. I began to think, gee, I can read the Baha'i writings in the same way I can read a poem by Wordsworth. I can apply exactly the same tools, the same skills. And get deep into uh, any Baha'i writing. And, and it was after that, at that period when I was in Haifa, that I began to write commentary, you know, individual commentary, of course, on the Baha'i writings. I wrote an article on Shoghi Effendi and the American Dream and the ways in which he recast and reinterpreted the American Dream and the Promised Day Has Come and Advent of Divine Justice.
0: These are books that Shoghi Effendi wrote. You know.
1: Yes, Shoghi Effendi, The Guardian. So I started applying some literary tools to the understanding of those books and wrote uh, a little bit about that. I wrote an article on Baha as a writer because she wanted to be remembered that way. And she'd written a lot of books, yeah. you know, in addition to all of the other things she did. So I, I interviewed her and wrote an article about her as a writer. So I started to apply my knowledge as a literary critic to Baha'i texts and contexts, and using it uh, that way. But I felt that the real watershed for me came when I got this idea to this course and, and to teach people how to read the writings in a way that made it easier for them and giving them tools, you know, the tools of literary criticism, the tools that people don't get anymore because we don't have, That rigorous literary training in grade school and and middle school and high school.
0: Well, Sandra, thank you so much for telling your story and your sharing your work with us.
1: Thanks a lot. It's wonderful to have a chance to talk about yourself for this. (laughs) (laughs) you know, the more you talk about yourself, the more you remember who you are, what you did, and you, you feel inspired to do more.
0: That's awesome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sandra Hutchinson, an author and poet who has written two books, Chinese Brushstrokes, A Memoir of Her Time in China in the Prelude to and Aftermath of the Tiananmen Incident, and The Art of Nesting, A Book of Poems. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number one 800 two two unite I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: All this weight I carry around deep inside me Makes it harder to fly free So fly, little one, fly You're the answer to the prayers of every saint that long to die No earthly things on your clean, tiny wings Made only of virtue and the sky so fly strength without the strength to deny you There's no power without the power to sin So fly noble one, fly Look above the world within you You can go higher if you try No earthly things on your clean mighty wings Now you know the one who made the sky little one fly fly little one
3: the goal of my desire. And through the power of thy transcendent might, lift me up. So and let the tidings of